Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, tomorrow Jesus is going to die. We are in our text at Thursday evening. The Thursday before Good Friday. And the Lord is with his disciples in the upper room and they are about to celebrate the Passover. The lamb has been slain and all is prepared. And Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knows what is coming. He knows that after this meal, he will go into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And there he will be arrested. And he will be tortured and condemned to death. And he will suffer the unspeakable agony of hell and the darkness on the cross. <laughs> and in less than 24 hours, he will be dead. Jesus knows all this. <clears throat> but Jesus knows more than all this. Jesus knows all of Philippians chapter 2. He knows that the way of the cross is the way to glory. He knows that his hour has come to depart out of the world to his Father. And he is already looking past the pain, past the cross, past the grave, past the resurrection, to the glory with which the Father will glorify him. The glory that he had in the presence of the Father before the world existed. He's already said that. If you just look back in the last chapter in John chapter 12, verse 23, He's already said that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knows who he is. Look there at verse 3. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He knows that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He knows that he is the son of the living God, that he is the Christ. He knows where he has come from and he knows where he is going. And after a lifetime of learning the revelation of God through the study of scripture about himself, and having that study confirmed by the voice of his Father from heaven, Christ has a supreme sense of who he is, his person, and his work, and his mission. That's something we don't always appreciate, but Christ as a true human being had to learn these things from the Scriptures. 
And he knows that he has come from God. He knows the path of suffering and agony and death ahead of him is the way back to God. And there in the last chapter, in John chapter 12, verse 27, he puts it this way, for this purpose I have come to this hour. He knows that his hour is all about the reason that he came into the world. And in this knowledge, says our text, he loved his own who were in the world. He loved his own, his beloved, his people, his chosen ones, his elect. Look at verse 1, child of God, and, and see yourself. In those words, he loved his own. We confess, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I am not my own. I am his own. And before the world existed, he loved his own. And because he loved his own, he came into the world. And because he loves his own, he will see his mission through to the bitter end. And then at the supper, look there at verse 2. It says, during the supper, which is a fine translation, but if we see what follows, we see that it's at the very the beginning of the supper. It's about supper time. <coughs> They're about to eat. And the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. And we are approaching a great inflection point in human history. The undoing of the fall. The evil hosts of the kingdom of darkness know that something very big is about to happen. And they are swirling around the capital of the kingdom of God in this world. They are lusting for betrayal and destruction and death. And Judas has Satan in his heart and is just waiting for his opportunity. The Lord Jesus knows this. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. He knows who he is. He knows what he is up against. And how does he respond? What does he do? He doesn't lash out in fear and anger. He doesn't try to destroy Judas before Judas destroys him. But he rose from the supper. He rose from the table. And he calmly chooses at this moment to teach the disciples and to teach us the church with one last living illustration of his teaching. His focus to the very end is not on himself, not on self-preservation, but his focus is on his love for you. And so the Lord Jesus girds himself, dresses himself like the lowest house slave. 
and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, they're not sitting at a table like we do, but they have a bunch of couches that are in a U-shape. There's a U-shaped table, and they're reclining with their feet sticking out away from the table. And so their feet are dusty and dirty from the journey. The city and the streets would not just have the dust and the dirt, but also sewage and manure of the animals that have been passing through the city. And so the normal practice in this time and this place would be to have water available for guests when they arrive to wash their feet. That's what we already read way back in the Old Testament. Abraham does that when the, the Lord comes with his angels. He offers them water to wash their feet. Lot does the same thing when he is visited. That's how hospitality works. You offer water so people can get the dirt of the road off their feet. And normally you would do it yourself if you were visiting someone. Perhaps a very rich household might have a slave do it for you. But never for the Jews a Hebrew slave. To wash someone else's feet was seen as so low and so humiliating that even if you were a slave, you were not expected to do it for another Jew, only a non-Jewish slave could do such a menial task. And this is what the Lord Jesus now does. Now, why would he do this? We learn from Luke that there's another dynamic happening here at the table at the Last Supper. In Luke, we, we read about a dispute there in chapter 22 where a dispute rose amongst them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And the Lord Jesus says to them, uh, who is greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? The different evangelists uh, record different facets of the work and the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ. But from the Gospel of Luke, we get this kind of an impression that they've come to the Passover supper They've come to the upper room. This is a great feast, a very significant feast. And where you were at the table spoke about your rank, how important you were. There were some higher places and some lower places. And so we get the impression that the disciples came in from the road, and each one of, the, each one of them was jockeying for their position, rushing to get the best place. If I stop and wash my feet, then somebody's going to take the place that I want. And so there they are. They fall into place at the table with unwashed feet. Now, the Lord Jesus is about to humble himself unto death, to undo the fall. And here, the disciples are reenacting the fall into sin as they jockey for position, as they grasp for power and glory according to the flesh, as they dispute who is the greatest. And the Lord Jesus doesn't respond right away with words. But he just stands up and he acts. And he humbles himself to the level of humiliation which even a Hebrew slave would consider too humiliating and too 
beneath him. And this is kind of awkward now, because by his actions, you can imagine that the Lord Jesus brings great shame upon these men who just a few moments before were arguing about who was the highest. And then he comes to Simon Peter in verse 6. I imagine the consternation and the embarrassment and the awkward silence, but of course it's going to be Peter that breaks that silence. And, and Peter hardly knows what to say. Lord, he says, curious, not rabbi, not teacher, but Lord, he, he exalts the Lord Jesus. Do you, and, and then he, he puts the you and the me right together in the Greek, do you of me wash the feet? How can this be? He understands the great height, the great gap between him and the Lord Jesus. Do you of me wash the feet? The Lord Jesus responds quietly afterward, Peter, you will understand what I'm doing. But Peter doesn't understand the character of faith, that it is to submit to God's will even when we cannot understand why. Remember Abraham with the sacrifice of Isaac, that's the character of faith. But Peter says, no, that it doesn't make sense. I don't understand it, so I don't accept it. And he responds in a way which is really hard to translate. He piles up the negatives. And he basically says this. He says, you are not never going to wash my feet for all eternity. That's what he literally says. For all eternity. It's never going to happen, Jesus. I'm not going to let that happen. Or ignorance in the first instance was met with gentle correction, but now ignorance has turned to obstinacy, which it often does. Peter does not accept the gracious way out that the Lord Jesus offered him. He digs in, and so the Lord Jesus shocks him with a stark truth. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now we can thank the Lord for this little scene because it reveals that there is more than one layer here of meaning. Christ is certainly showing his disciples the character of leadership in the kingdom of God. Look there at verse 14, for instance. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If I can humble myself to the most menial level to serve the others, then you certainly can do the same thing. And that's the lesson that the Lord Jesus is teaching them. But with it is a deeper layer. What is the purpose of this service? If the Lord calls to office Simply people that must engage in servant leadership if they must serve those over whom the Lord has put them. Does this mean to say that whenever we have some menial task to do at home, like wash the dishes or cut the grass, we, the elders and the deacons are just a phone call away? Because they should be men who serve. Is that what the Lord Jesus is teaching? Well, the interchange 
between Christ and Peter with respect to washing reveals the goal of servant leadership. It is not to respond to every request and every demand of those whom they serve, but it is specifically to minister the washing away of the filth and the stain of sin. It is to serve the sanctification of God's people. And here is Peter saying, Lord Jesus, I don't want you to humble yourself like a servant and wash my feet. I don't accept that. And basically what the Lord is saying to him is, Peter, you're making a big deal about me humbling myself to wash your feet. But you have no idea what lengths I am about to go to to wash you completely from all your sins. I am about to humble myself unto death. My lifeblood will pour out of my pierced body as I hang in agony on the cross with all the filth and the stain of your sins and the sins of all the elect piled upon me. You carry in your body the mark of the covenant. It speaks of that washing. If I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. Now, Peter does not necessarily understand all these details, but he certainly understands the seriousness of what the Lord Jesus says. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And he impetuously replies, Lord, not my feet, also also my hands and my head. There's something in Jesus' words and tone that makes it clear there's no arguing here. And he concedes and now demands more washing than is being offered. And the Lord Jesus once again gently corrects him. The one who is bathed does not need to wash. Now, there are some layers going on here. There's first of all the physical layer of bodies being washed and feet being washed. In the seven days before the Passover, the Jews would ritually cleanse themselves, and that involved certain washings on certain days, including this last day before the Passover. And so the disciples are washed. They're ritually pure for the feast. And they've come in from the road, and all they need is to have their feet cleaned. That's the external situation. But this is at the same time a picture of the deeper spiritual, spiritual reality with respect to sin and to washing. The Lord Jesus is referring at a deeper level to the washing away of our sins in his blood. Peter, as a believer in Christ, is clean. He doesn't need to be cleaned again. So what does it mean then, that foot washing in that deeper, more spiritual sense? If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The the Lord's not saying that we can die to take away other people's sins. We don't need to do that. He's done that. The one who is bathed does not need to wash. But as we deal with each other, as a washed congregation, 
as a company of believers walking along the road to the New Jerusalem, our feet are in contact with the world, in daily contact with the world and with our flesh, and that reveals the, the filth and the stain of our daily weaknesses and transgressions. What does God want us to do when we see that? When we see one another with dirty feet, do we point out each other's failures and flaws and transgressions? Do we post them on social media? Do we gossip about them? Do we mock and humiliate each other? No, we humble ourselves and we minister the sanctifying grace of God to one another in the power of the Spirit working through the Word and the sacraments. We serve one another by gently, lovingly, humbly applying the forgiving, cleansing, and sanctifying power of the gospel to one another's sins and weaknesses and failures. We humbly help one another to grow in holiness. That's the deeper spiritual signification of this foot washing. Now, brothers, elders and deacons, you have been called by God to give us leadership in this kind of foot washing. You are called to be examples for us. You have been called and today you are anointed by the Holy Spirit to show us how it's done. And congregation, we are called to receive these men as Christ himself. Look there at verse 20, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And that means that when these men come to you in their office, when they visit you, when they speak with you, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who visits you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks with you. When these men minister to you, it is Christ who ministers to you. And when we receive them, we receive Christ. And when we receive Christ, we receive the Father. And that means that through the ministry of these men, we are drawn closer into the embrace of the Father. These men are living signs that God loves his own and loves them to the end. That the Lord does not just wash us from sin and the blood of Christ, justifying us in his blood, but that the Lord also patiently works on us and sanctifies us and makes us grow in holiness using the ministry of these men of God. And this is good news for those who are in Christ. This is good news for those who are clean, who are justified. But what about the unbeliever, and specifically the unbeliever in the church? Here in verse 10, the Lord Jesus notes, you are clean, but not every one of you. He knows that in the visible church, there are those who are unbelieving. In this group, there is Judas. Judas had the external sign of the covenant. Judas had the sign of belonging. 
Judas had the sign of washing, but he was not washed. Well, how does that work? Because the covenant sign and the covenant promise were not embraced in faith. His heart was not for God. His heart was in the grip of sin and the devil. And Judas, like all the other disciples, experienced all the externals of the covenant. He had his feet washed by the Lord Jesus, but he remained unholy and polluted with the filth and the stain of sin. And there is a serious warning here in our text, brother and sister. If you're here today or you're watching online and you love sin and your heart is cold or indifferent, towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all the blessings and privileges of the covenant are skin deep for you and have not penetrated to your heart and you have not embraced them with true faith, then today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You can be baptized. You can be a respected member of the church. You can participate in the ministry of the word and sacraments. You can serve as an office bearer. You can preach from the pulpit. But if all of that has stayed on the outside, if all of this has just washed over you, but it has never washed you, if the gospel has never penetrated into the inner recesses of your soul, and you have never known the power of the gospel of God making you holy and cleansing you with the washing of water by the word, if that's who you are, then no amount of pastoral encouragement towards sanctification can fix you because you first need to be clean. You first need to be saved. You first need to be justified. And I command you, in the name of God, stop your play acting. Stop your pretending. Stop deceiving yourself and others. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this solemn warning is sobering for those who do not have a heart of faith. But child of God, humble believer, as we consider our sins and unworthiness, do not fear. Do not be afraid that your sins will disqualify you from God's love. He has loved you from eternity. He knows whom he has chosen. He has loved his own who were in the world. And he will love you to the end. And because he loves you, and because he holds on to you, today he gives you these men to pastor you, to shepherd you in the gospel. And as they minister the grace of God to you, the Lord Jesus Christ himself ministers to you. And he gives you these men to encourage you and to help you to grow in sanctification. And as Christ ministers to us 
through them. Let us give thanks to the Lord. And let us humbly bow our knees before his majesty. Let every tongue confess that Christ is king. And let us grow in holiness to the praise of God the Father. Amen.